Christian world is in a deep sleep. Nothing but a loud voice can awaken them out of it. So boom the words of the famous 18th century revivalist George Whitfield. And I can't help but to agree wholeheartedly with him, even though the words were uttered some 200, almost 300 years ago, their thundering importance are still felt today. Now, if I were to ask you to describe for me in a couple of words, let's say two words, what the spiritual state of the union is in this country, think about it now, what terms, what two terms would you use? Jot them down on your bulletin. What would you use for terminology? Down the tubes. Down the tubes. That's three words. <laughs> would it be renewal and revival? Some groups might use those terms. How about doctrinally adrift? Maybe in light of the current trajectory of our country, you might use terms like morally deficient, ethically traumatized, intellectually confused, emotionally manipulated, satanically deceived, and ultimately destroyed. And you might even go so far as to claim that without a doubt, people are being spiritually raped. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, oh, wait a minute, that's, a, that's, those are strong words. Fact, folks, is that Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. But to say that invites an endless discussion on the topic of spiritual diversity and the ever-heated issue of tolerance. We are a nation which prides itself on the fact that we can allow others to live and die as they please with little or no moral repercussions whatsoever, right? Tolerance of immoral and aberrant behavior, once viewed as socially destructive, is now culturally upheld as the utmost of virtues. Very brief perusal of what certain groups within the boundaries of even Christendom condone and even advocate clarifies the fact that G.K. Chesterton was right on the mark when he spoke what I feel is one of the greatest truths in contemporary society. He said that tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. That, my friends, is a wake-up call to the Church of America in this century. Chesterton has sounded an alarm that should shake us and awaken us out of a deep sleep. There was a time when the scriptures permeated our culture, wasn't there? No longer. In fact, in many cases, they no longer permeate the church. It's a new day. There are new rules, and they have changed radically. There was a day when the nation and the church possessed simple common sense. That, my friends, is a day lost to history, I believe. America has lynched common sense. Recently, I reread a, a poem that encapsulates just how far I think we've drifted. The words were written by Arthur Giederman. They go like this. First, dentistry was painless. Then bicycles were chainless. And carriages were horseless and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless, tele telegraphy was wireless, cigars were nicotineless, and coffee ca caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, and putting, the putting green was weedless. The college boy hatless, the proper diet fatless. Now motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, and our new religions godless. You might be interested to know that those words were written in 1936. You want to know what happens when religions become godless? Moral absolutes become pointless. That philosophy may work well in theory, 
but it, and it may sound great in a college philosophy course. It may provide fuel for a great postmodern discussion at breakfast on Tuesday morning. But in real life, you tell me if moral absolutes are pointless. Ask the family whose dad deserted them because he felt that he was trapped and he needed his space. Solicit the opinion of the family whose mom will never again see their school play or never cook them another meal or give them another ride to a friend's house because society has convinced her that to take your life is an acceptable way to deal with your pain. Ask the grieving parent of the deceased college freshman if the drinking age really ought to be lowered to 18 years old. Godless America has lynched common sense. Do you know what the logical conclusion is when a society denies the importance of right and wrong? The chilling answer to that question can be found written on a prison wall in Poland. Quote, I freed Germany from the stupid and degrading fallacies of conscience and morality. Unquote. Do you know who made that statement? Adolf Hitler. Where are those words posted? In a Nazi death camp. Visitors could go there, who go there can read the claim and, and then witness the results of such a boast. A room stuffed with thousands of pounds of women's hair, walls filled with pictures of castrated children, and gas ovens that served as Hitler's final solution. Now, as my family and I soberly walked through the Holocaust muse Museum on a few occasions in Washington, D.C., we, as probably as many of you who have been there, witnessed the atrocious results that spiritually inverted philosophy of life can lead to. Incredibly, these people were convinced that what they were doing was right. As Dostoevsky once stated, if God is dead, then everything is justifiable. But God is not dead. He is not dead. And his truth still compels the so-called politically correct and morally absurd opinions of men to answer to a higher standard. God is calling us to refuse to compromise. He wants you and me to realize that no matter how strong the downward slide of our culture becomes, he never changes. His character remains constant. He declares what is right and what he decries is wrong is wrong. And regardless of how it looks right now, evil will be punished and justice will be served. That is the wake-up call that we need to hear again and again and again. It was the wake-up call that Malachi gave to his, the, the people of his day. I want you to turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to preach on just this one verse this morning. Verse 17. Malachi 2, verse 17. Here goes. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? Let me read it to you out of the New Living Translation. It'll be on the screen. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Wearied him, you ask? How have we wearied him? You have wearied him by suggesting that the Lord favors evildoers since he does not punish them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, because God seemed to be dilly-dallying around in fulfilling his covenant promises to the nation, the people of Malachi's day began to grow tired of waiting for him. They had returned to the land. They had rebuilt the temple. They had renewed the, the sacrifices, reconfirmed the covenant, and had waited for the Lord to come into his temple as he promised 75 years earlier through the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 8.3, we read these words. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion 
and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. But decades began to come and go and the people of Malachi's day had grown disillusioned and disenchanted with this idea of living righteously because God hadn't come. The Jews felt that they had done their part, but God had failed them somehow. The delay of his return eventually gave way to an, an immense spiritual slide downhill. And it became an excuse for them to say that God was indeed dead. Or at the very least, he just didn't care. One commentator pointed out that the question, where is the God of justice, in verse 17, is tantamount to doubting his existence. Or at least doubting his holy character. Spiritual erosion had become so much a part of the fabric of the nation at this point that they began to rationalize their sin and literally justify their actions. They eventually would claim that serving God wasn't worth their time or their effort because there was no return on their investment. No reward. Indeed, the fact that evildoers were not immediately judged by God was twisted to mean that God had actually endorsed the evil and was pleased with those who engaged in it. They wanted to know where the justice was. Look ahead a little bit to Malachi 3, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read it to you out of the Good News Bible. You have said, it's useless to serve God. What's the use of doing what he says or of trying to show the Lord Almighty that we're sorry for what we've done? As we see it, proud people are the ones who are happy. Evil people not only prosper, but they test God's patience with their evil deeds and get away with it. They began to adopt an attitude of unbelief and skepticism. The biting irony of their mocking words has a contemporary ring to it, doesn't it? How many people today question God's character because evil runs unchecked in the world. You've heard it, haven't you? We hear it all the time. How many times have you heard someone allude to the fact that if God were really there, he'd put an end to violence. He'd put an end to abuse. He'd finish off hunger once and for all, racism, and every other evil that you could possibly list. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that those who seemingly try to follow the Lord get slapped in the face by him? Where is this so-called God of justice anyway? You've heard that, haven't you? Maybe in a moment of intense frustration, you have said it. And God's heard it. And he hears the people saying it today. Loud and clear. And I got to tell you, he's no more pleased with it today than he was 2,500 years ago when Malachi addressed it here. The fact is, one day will come, he will come and exact full justice to all those who have not placed their trust and hope in his son, Jesus, who took God's judgment of all sin upon himself. And it's only by his sheer mercy that we're not destroyed on the spot when we ourselves sin. Malachi 3, again, back up a little bit and look at verses 5 and 6. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside, the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God's final word on this issue delivered by Malachi in 450 B.C. is the same word that we need to hear in 2009. 
The changelessness of God's character demands the consistency of our obedience to him. Let's look at this bold-faced charge, first of all, in verse 17 again, the first part of the verse. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, if I were to characterize the religious climate of Malachi's day with two words, I think two words would be sufficient. And these are the two words, spiritual obduracy. Fancy words, huh? You ought to know them because they accurately depict the state of our society today. Spiritual obduracy simply means to be spiritually hardened against good or moral influence. It is to be resistant to persuasion or softening influences, to be so calloused and hardened in heart that one is unyielding to what is good, but is instead stubbornly persistent in doing what is wrong. And please notice here in Malachi 2, verse 17, this is a charge God levels not at society, but at his own people. In short, God says, God says, I'm tired of it. You have wearied the Lord with your words. I am tired of it. And the Hebrew grammar here indicates that this sinful conduct of the people, it wasn't just a fact of their history. Oh, not on the contrary, it, it was ongoing. God literally says, I'm weary of your complaints. I'm sick of your hypocritical whining. I'm worn out with your indifferent attitudes and spiritual blindness. Your sins have utterly exhausted my patience. You think God ever gets tired? No, in a physical sense, the scripture says very clearly in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, that God never grows weary or tired. And it's never said in Scripture that he is wearied by the sincere prayers and the, and, the, and the persistent questions of honest seekers of truth. But it is no secret that he grows extremely tired of hypocritical worship and a lack of repentance. He is wearied, so to speak, by the burden of our sins and we can exhaust his patience with heartless devotion and spirit, spiritless worship. That's what he says in Isaiah. Because his desire is that we worship him with a heart that is broken before him. He wants to know that when you come to worship him, it's not out of religious obligation, but because you long to be in his presence with no agenda other than to exalt him for who he is. That's what he has always wanted from the time of Cain and Abel until today. And I'm so thankful that our time of worship this morning was what it was. Because I think God was pleased with that. I really do. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 says this, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And yet people today, as in Malachi's day, still come at times with an attitude, an indifferent attitude. The attitude that says, how have we wearied the Lord? And look at that high-handed challenge here in verse 17 again. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? How is their question, how? After all that they had been through and charged with thus far, they still had the audacity to step up to the plate and challenge God. This is what they were doing. Please tell us, they taunted God. How? How have we wearied him? In what specific manner have we caused the Lord to be out of patience with us? They're asking Malachi. And the prophet says, your own words have done it. It was their own statements that had revealed their calloused hearts. Friends, it's our words. Make no mistake about it. It is our words that we speak that will ultimately expose 
what is really in our hearts as we wait for Christ's return. Jesus said the good man out of of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. What are we speaking these days as we wait for Christ to come back? Their cynical words revealed the cold-hearted corruption that had colored their character. Again, verse 17 prophet says, how have you wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. It was evident in the words that they threw out against God himself. And their words indicated three major deficiencies in their spiritual makeup, which are incidentally the same things that characterize the collective conscience of our society today. First of all, notice what they had. They had inverted morals. Look at what it says. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. According to their cynical worldview, everyone who did evil was good in God's eyes. In other words, God must be okay with evil because he's not judging it. But nothing could be further from reality. This bold statement of the people was in the exact opposition to the statements of God. In Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 and 2, this is what the Lord says. Quote, Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil, unquote. See, the prophet Isaiah reiterated the bold truth that it was by doing what is right and what is good and by refraining from doing evil that would result in God's hand of blessing. And the word evil here literally means to spoil by breaking into pieces, to make useless and good for nothing. It refers basically to any unethical and immoral activity against others and God, either by speech, practice, or improper worship. And God cannot approve of it anyway, in any way, shape, or form without denying his own very nature. Another prophet in the scripture struggled with this dilemma of why evil seems to go unchecked in this world. The prophet Habakkuk said this in chapter 1, Your eyes, Lord, are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You ever wonder about that yourself? I do. God's long-suffering and patience with evil in the world frustrates us to no end, doesn't it? As it did the psalmist until he actually thought it through. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73 for a moment. I'm going to read it to you out of the Living Bible, which is a paraphrase, just to give you kind of an idea on what he's saying. I won't read the whole thing, but some excerpts out of it. How good God is to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I came so close to the edge of the cliff. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I was envious of the prosperity of the proud and the wicked. Yes, all through, all, all through life their road is smooth. They grow sleek and fat. They aren't always in trouble and plagued with problems like everyone else. So their pride sparkles like a jeweled necklace in their clothing is woven of cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff at God and threaten his people. How proudly they speak. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut through the earth. And so God's people are dismayed and confused and drink it all in. Does God realize what's going on, they ask? Look at these men of arrogance. They never have to lift a finger. Theirs is a life of ease and all the time their riches multiply. Have I been wasting my time? Why take the trouble to be pure? 
all I get out of it is trouble and woe. Every day and all day long. If I had really said that, I would have been a traitor to your people. Yet it is so hard to explain it, this prosperity of those who hate the Lord. Then one day I went into God's sanctuary to meditate and thought about the future of these evil men. What a slippery path they're on. Suddenly God will send them sliding over the edge of the cliff and down to their destruction. An instant end to all their happiness and eternity of terror. Their present life is only a dream. They will awaken to the truth as one awakens from a dream of things that never really were. I love the way that's put there. At the end of the psalm, he says, but as for me, I get as close to him as I can. I have chosen him, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful ways he rescues me. The reality of all of it is, is that God has declared serious, serious woes upon those who reverse the moral absolutes he has laid down himself. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18. I'll never forget the first time I ever read these verses in Scripture. That first year I got saved, and I read through the Bible. And I came across these verses of Scripture, and I was just blown away by them. I was thinking, this, this is today. This is in the current time I'm living. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin, as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Look at verse 23. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Doesn't that sound like today? I, I got to tell you, and I'm going to probably get in big trouble for saying this. Don't you love it when somebody prefaces a statement like that? You wake up and you want to listen to what he's saying, right? I can't tell you how heartrending and chilling it was for me to watch the Oscars a little while ago and watch actor Sean Penn receive an Oscar for performing a role that glorifies a lifestyle that the Bible calls abhorrent. For that same actor to unethically use that platform to vomit his political views, verbally accosting those who oppose it, and then to witness an entire auditorium erupt with enthusiastic applause in hearty approval. It was like I was watching Romans 1 come alive in front of my eyes. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15 says this, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. The reality is that those whose lives are characterized by evil have a bleak future if they continue in it, if they don't recognize the sovereignty of God through faith in Christ. God is against them, it says in the scripture. Now, in Romans it says, if God is for us, who is against us? But the flip side is much more devastating if God is against us, who can be for you? Psalm 34, verse 15 and 16 says this, The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help, but the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will erase their memory from the earth. Friends, evil will not endure. It will not. Instead of giving up and giving into it, God calls people and nations, indeed, he calls you and I, you and me, to repent of it, to seek good and to literally hate evil. Do you hate evil? 
Do you really? Enough to stay completely away from it? I'm wishy-washy in my daily life. I, I hate evil, but sometimes I flirt with it. Do you? Listen to these scriptures. I'm just going to read some scriptures to you. Proverbs 3, 7. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, scripture says. Proverbs 4, verses 14 and 15. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn from it and pass on. How many times am I going to fall in that pothole? How many times am I going to drive down the bog road and wreck my alignment, front end alignment on my car by hitting the same pothole before I decide to go a different way? How many times will we flirt with evil and fall into the ditch until we finally decide to go a different way? Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Listen to Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Make it your aim to do what is right and not what is evil, so that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty really will be with you as you claim he is. Hate what is evil, love what is right, and see that justice prevails in the courts. Perhaps the Lord will be merciful to the people of this nation who are still left alive. Romans 12, 9, just in case you thought it was all in the Old Testament. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And in Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Have you ever thought about what kind of spiritual epitaph you might have if your life was summarized in the Bible as some of the Old Testament characters were? Ever thought about what someone might write about your life if it was written down for eternity in the Scripture? Listen to what one person, what, what the summary of one person's life was. 2 Chronicles chapter 31 and verses 20 to 21 says this, And he did what was good right and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Isn't that a great summary? Wouldn't you like to have somebody write that about your life? King Hezekiah, that was his summary. I'd love to have that written about me in eternity. But what would God write about me or you in eternity? Would your name go down in the annals of spiritual history the way that guy's did? Unfortunately, many people's names don't. They don't see the point. Like Malachi's audience, they're characterized by inverted morals and secondly, by, because they had developed an arrogant mindset. Back in Malachi 2.17 again, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. He delights in them. Where is the God of justice? Not only did these people mistakenly believe that God viewed evildoers as good, but he actually delighted in them. And the implication here is that God takes pleasure in those who do evil and is actually attracted to them. Now to say that God delights in evil is absolutely ludicrous, isn't it? The Bible everywhere declares that to be untenable. But it does give rise to the honest question of why do the wicked prosper, doesn't it? Why doesn't God bring immediate justice? As I pointed out earlier, 
We're not the only people to ask those questions. Jeremiah was perplexed by those same issues. And you can read it in Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And he asked these questions, but God never really answered them. The prophet Habakkuk had the same struggle with God in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. Let me read it to you. 113, your eyes, Lord, are too pure to approve evil. You can't look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you done all of these things? He asks. But if you read on in the book of Habakkuk and you find that his conclusion settles the issue. In Habakkuk 2, verse 16, toward the end of the verse, the prophet says, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And in verse 20, he says, he, put, he puts the, the definitive period on the issue when he says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What's the prophet saying? He's saying, you know what? Eventually, what goes around comes around and God is still on the throne. That's what the prophet's saying. But you may be still asking, why does Malachi come down so hard on his people here in verse 17 when, when the people like the psalmists and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and other prophets before them asked all the same questions without God's rebuke? Why come down on these people? Well, the difference, I believe, is that the prophets were asking in sincere frustration and confusion, and they wanted God's truth. The people of Malachi's day, however, were characterized just as many cynical people today are by the third element of cold-hearted corruption, and it's this. They spoke with insidious mockery. While the confused prophets lifted up their hands in prayer over their dilemma, the corrupt people in Malachi's day shook their fists in protest instead. One group was seeking God's answer. The other group was challenging God's truth. They were taunting God. Where are you, God? Where's the justice? And people do the same thing today. There are differences between those who are frustrated with evil in the world and are seeking God's answer to the question and those who shake their fist at God and say, come on, bring it on. You don't care about evil, otherwise you'd do something about it. I don't even think you're there to listen to me right now. People do that. We hear it all the time. A man in Massachusetts stole a car from a parking lot and then died in a traffic accident while making his getaway. His estate sued the parking lot for letting him steal the car. Ridiculous, huh? A burglar was robbing a school. As he was traversing the roof in the darkness, he fell through a skylight. His attorneys charged the school with negligence and won $260,000 in damages plus a $1,200 a month payment to the burglar for his injuries. It's a true story. In York, Pennsylvania, after axe murderer Carl Chambers had been found guilty of robbing, beating, and killing a 70-year-old woman, okay, his sentence was voided and a new hearing ordered because the district attorney quoted from the Bible. To be more specific, in his closing remarks, the district attorney said, quote, the Bible says the murderer shall be put to death, unquote, and for that reason the judge ordered that the axe murderer be resentenced. I wonder how the 70-year-old woman whom he murdered would have felt about that. In Dallas, a woman was throwing a paper route on a quiet residential street early in the morning. She had a regular day job, but had taken on the paper route to help with some expenses for her elderly mother. A man recently released from a mental hospital stepped out of the darkness, walked up behind her, and shot her dead in, in cold blood. Approximately one year later, 
as the judge released the man to freedom, he said, quote, Sir, I want you to do what is right. That means that you are to take your medication every day, unquote. And with that, he set the man free. Now this one strikes close to home because I used to work with a guy that was let out of, off, he, he was let out of prison and was on medication and he had murdered someone. He worked in my office. And I always used to get there and I'd go, man, I, took, I hope he took his medicine today. <laughs> we get angry at stuff like that, don't we? We say it's unfair. God, why don't you judge them? But let me ask you a question. What if he had dispensed immediate justice upon you the last time you sinned against your wife or children or the last time you took his name in vain? You see, we're always, we always want justice for the other person and we want mercy for ourselves, don't we? Where is the God of justice? The fact is, is that God is still on the throne. He is still in his temple. He sees it all. Nothing escapes his notice. The evil will not get off scot-free. The wicked will not have an easy time in eternity. The arrogant will not reign supreme. You can bet your life on it. Justice is an attribute of God. True justice has its source in God, but so does mercy. And God reaches beyond justice to mercy. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 says this, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Hey, don't worry about the mockers. They'll have their day in court. And it won't be pretty. Just remember that justice will be served, but God's mercy must be offered first. That's God's character. Peter had a handle on that. I think Peter was glad that justice wasn't meted out to him when he denied Christ three times. But rather, mercy was offered. Listen to his reminder in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you want to look at that, you're welcome to. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise concerning you, but is patient toward you not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In the wake of God's bold-faced charge to the people of Malachi's day, and in the face of their high-handed challenge, and in, in the place of our cold-hearted corruption, we have to come to grips with a hard-nosed conclusion. I believe that these people that Malachi is speaking to were beyond simply having doubts. They weren't just skeptical and they weren't just cynical. They had moved into the self-destructive arena of unbelief. They were in flat-out rebellion against God. Now listen, friends, it's one thing to have doubts and we all have them. Sometimes doubts are good because they cause us to seek answers in order to find truth. But doubt can also hurt. Mismanaged doubt can lead to what the Bible refers to as persistent unbelief. 
far different than intellectual uncertainty, this severe form of doubt is a refusal to trust, which ultimately leads to despair. And there are a lot of people today that are in that dangerous place. John Ortberg, in his new book entitled Faith and Doubt, writes this. He says, the rebel is not simply someone who doesn't believe. He or she is someone who doesn't want to believe. Rebels do not want the story of Jesus to be true. They do not want to live in the universe governed by the kind of father whom Jesus himself trusted and described. And this desire goes so deep that it colors the way they look at every argument and every bit of evidence and make sure they find a way not to believe. Rebels are afraid of what would happen if they were to surrender themselves to God. And so they just deny and they defy. C.S. Lewis said that when he was an unbeliever, atheism was not only his belief, but it was his strongest desire. Quote, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference, unquote. Rebels fear and hate being interfered with, and God is a divine interferer. Sometimes the existence of God would turn out to be borrowing a phrase from former Vice President Al Gore, an inconvenient truth. An inconvenient truth. And all of us know people that are in that place. John had a friend said he liked Denny, but he couldn't figure out why he kept wanting to meet. He was a large man, a construction guy, and I was a little intimidated. He wanted to talk about God, and so we did. And he asked one difficult question after another about faith, one tough intellectual issue after another. We would talk each one through as to the closest resolution that we could arrive at, and he would always bring up something else. Finally, I asked him, if all of these issues were settled in your mind, if every intellectual barrier you raised were dismantled, is there anything else besides all this intellectual stuff that would hold you back from following Jesus? And there was this long silence. Then he didn't like the question. Because it turned out that he was involved in sexual behavior that he knew was not honoring to God and that if he were to become a follower of Jesus Christ, he would have to change and he didn't want to change. His mind caused him to find all kinds of objections, but the reality was that he did not want it to be true. He was afraid of what he would have to do if it were. John says, if Denny had been smaller, I probably would have pointed this out earlier. <laughs> here's, the, here's the conclusion of the whole thing. What do you want to believe? Because you're going to believe what you want to believe, ultimately and eventually. What do you want to believe? It is the most important question that we can ask when it comes to this search for faith. What do you want to believe? It's crucial to be honest about this, folks, because over time we have a tendency to find ourselves believing what we want to believe. Philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote, quote, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that, unquote. The reason this question on the screen is so important for us is that if we want to, we can find ways that explain away every reason given for faith. The existence of creation, stories of answered prayer, evidence of the resurrection, testimonies of changed lives, the unmatched wisdom of Jesus, and the tugging and longing of our own heart for grace, forgiveness, meaning, wholeness, transcendence, and heaven. If you want badly enough not to believe, you will find a way not to believe. What do you want to believe? What do you want to believe? God answered the question 
about justice in Malachi's day by pointing to a coming Messiah. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. God answers the contemporary question of where is God's justice in the same manner by pointing us to Jesus Christ who is coming again. For in fact, when Jesus Christ came into the world and gave up his life on the cross, he completely, once for all time, satisfied the justice of God. He paid the penalty for every sin of every man, woman, and child ever to be born on the face of the planet and in so doing vindicated his holiness. No one can ever truthfully say that God isn't just. The cross of Christ is proof positive that the same God who said that the wages of sin is death is the one who died for us while we were yet sinners. He demonstrated his love for us that, that way. The first time he came, the scripture says, was for the purpose of salvation. And he wants people to come to repentance. He takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 18. But I want to tell you something. The next time he comes, the scripture says, and no one knows the day or the hour no one knows. It will not be for salvation. It will be for judgment. So choose now. Now, today, is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've made it very clear to us you are a God of justice and at the same time seems like such an oxymoron to me but you are a God of mercy only you could have satisfied those two ideals simultaneously in one gracious act of self-sacrifice you died in our place so that we they have a relationship with you and be reconciled to you. God, bring that to our minds today over and over again. And as we deal with the world around us, let us pray for those who need Christ to come to Christ. For Jesus' sake I pray, and in his holy and precious name, amen.